Two Poor Bastards contains explicit content and drunken ramblings. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 15 of Two Poor Bastards. This week, we're going to get into the Apocalypse Trilogy slash The Thing. And we are going to go and drink ourselves some Whistle Pig 10-Year Straight Rye. Very excited about that. Uh, If you uh, like us, please do what you can. Like us on our social media pages. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Go to our website. Uh, you know, we got exclusive content there. Uh, you know, give us a hey, like us on your pod uh, player of choice. If that's iTunes, you can find us everywhere. I think the only thing we're not on is Spotify. Uh, but if you want us there, let us know. Uh, you know, again, like those episodes, share them, do all the things. Uh, we appreciate your feedback. We want to know what you think. You know, is there something that a whiskey that we should try? Is there something that you want to hear us dive into? Suggestion? You know, we will do it. Because we yeah, want to learn. Know. To, let us know. We'll, we'll throw you a bone. Yeah, we'll throw you a bone. We, we, you know. Throw us a bone. Yeah. Say something. Say something to us. So, anyways, that's my little bit for the beginning of this. So, we are drinking Whistle Pig. I picked this up. It's the... Lowest price point, I think, of their their line. Yep. Uh, it cost me about eighty eight bucks when it was all said and done. So I really hope that this is a good whiskey because it's a a little spendy for is it's a relatively new whiskey, isn't it? It's new to the market ish. I mean, it's been around a couple few years now, and uh, yeah. So Whistle Pig. Started as a, a non-producer distiller, um, non-distiller producer, excuse me. So this rye whiskey, um, unlike most that you're used to seeing, this is 100% rye and, for the mash bill. And this is Canadian rye whiskey. Although Whistlepig's like, we're in Vermont doing Vermont things. This is sourced whiskey from Canada that uh, they've had. And it's been aging there. And also recently, or not not so recently, it's been a little time now, um, Whistlepig has started distilling their own stuff. So the idea that they had was they're going to have this Canadian whiskey, they're going to age it, they're going to sell it, they're going to do that while they're starting up their own thing, you know, getting the still going, growing their own rye on location on the farm where, you know, the distillery is, that kind of thing. Um, you will start to see uh, whistle pig called uh, farm stock, and that's a mixture of what they're producing that's not aged hardly at all, added to the Canadian stuff that they've had. And I have 
heard two extremes now about that. One is that it's absolutely awful because their distillate kind of sucks or it's not aged enough and it's just too right. new to be put into it. And then by someone working at a liquor store saying that it's fantastic, which I take with a grain of salt because their whole purpose is to sell this shit. So right, right. It might I, not be that good. So uh, are they only a rye whiskey maker? Only rye, only rye whiskey. Okay. That's it. So, and that's cool because I really like rye whiskey. So that's yeah, you're right rye up boy. my alley. Um, Canadian rye is definitely a lot different than American rye, though. So it's it's got a different flavor profile. So this is literally it's it's distilled and then shipped directly down to Vermont, and they age it in their rickhouse, or is it aged? In a Canadian rickhouse first. It, it, I would say a fair chunk of it was aged in Canada before it came here because Whistlepig hasn't been around for 10 years. Like the youngest age statement on any of their bottles is, right. you know, 10 years. You've got your 10, your 15. Uh, there's a 12. They've got things like the Boss Hog, their limit, super limited releases. Uh the farm stock, like I had mentioned before. And what's interesting to me, what's interesting is all those things that you're talking about, they're fucking expensive. It gets, they jump up in price really quick. Oh yeah. And so that's, I've heard a lot of good things from multiple people, not necessarily about the farm stock, but about from people tasting whistle pig in general, saying that they really enjoyed mm -hmm. it. So I, I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, what this is going to be. And, uh, so I, you know, said, fuck it. Let's, Let's get a bottle and it's it's been something that I've been meaning to pick up again. The last time I had a bottle was a little over a year ago. I was out at my buddy's place in California, and at the time we couldn't get it in Minnesota. It's only recently become available here, and so I saw it out there and I was like, "Ooh, I can't get this. I've heard about it. I want to try it about a bottle there." I was drunk most of the time, so I don't really remember what I tasted, <laughs> and a lot of people were pouring Whiskey. it, so it went fast, and I didn't really get much of it. I mean, after party night, so right. Okay. It'll be good to revisit this because I want to say I think I liked it at the time. I don't remember not liking it or anything. So it's exciting. So I'm hoping that this goes well for us because our favorite local liquor store is getting a barrel pick. A single barrel pick. Yeah. Single barrel pick from them. So I'm really, I'm hoping that it's good because I'd like to get hopefully what is a cherry pick. Now you never know because the last <laughs> barrel that we got wasn't necessarily that good so no but I, I was assured by one of the people who was there for the tasting is that they tried multiple different barrels and when they got to this one the two gentlemen who chose it were like they just looked at each other right away and were like oh this is definitely it but we're also you know trusting the palate of that of person, other people yeah. of other people so I can only trust my own so. right exactly I you know to each their own. This the at least they picked what they thought was the better of the options. <laughs> at least they did that. Yeah, so we, we know that much. So it's a newer company, as you said, it's starting to hit our market, the Minneapolis market. Uh it's been popping up and you know, so again, we'll let you know if it's a worthwhile investment. Because I think yes, it has an age statement, so that's nice. But eighty plus bucks depending if you're getting at a municipal liquor store or not it's a little steep for you know a newer whisk if that for doesn't a have a lot of year yeah doesn't have a, like a lot of clout behind its name per se like i get 
Like you can get like a McKellen, a good McKellen for eighty bucks. Well, I mean, you either get twelve, a bottle of twelve, which is like fifty bucks, or a bottle of eighteen, which is like two hundred something. Oh, so, well, shit, never mind then. Yeah, there's a there's I mean, a pretty a little bit of gaping. difference, but you're getting something. I mean, hell, you used to be able to get Henry McKenna ten year or Elijah Craig twelve year for a little over twenty bucks. Yep. Yeah, it's amazing what I think. What's really interesting is the whiskey trends and what's getting hot and what's getting not, and how it affects those particular brands. Because you know they're there's some very respectable whiskeys I think that are you know like thirty bucks or less that are really good, and then there's some shit that's more than double and it tastes like ass. Yeah, but it's just it's, because. But it's so weird with the age statements now. Like if you've ever seen Peerless Rye. That shit's been aged for 24 months, says on the bottle, and it's over $100 for a bottle. Fuck that shit. It's like, why? Ugh. You haven't put any time into this for this to be so expensive. God, does it, you're, at that point... When a bottle, if you, if you are able to get it at a retail price, if you can find a bottle, get lucky enough to get Sazerac 18, you get the king of rise, the... One of the oldest age statement ones that you can get, $80. That's the suggested retail price on it. It's not what you're going to get in the aftermarket, but that's what it should be. And it's just like, I... Is that a fall product? Yes, it's part of the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. So for all those who are listening, maybe getting into whiskey for the first time, you know, like getting introduced to it, fall is whiskey season. All the good stuff comes out then. September to December is basically when the, the fancies come out. You get that so real this fancy is, shit. You know, now, if you're a serious per- pursuer, if you will, of it, you're going to be neck and neck with everybody else that's trying to get cherry bottles like ourselves. Or if you're real lucky, you've got an inn somewhere and you just have someone get it for you, which, fuck you. Yeah, we hate you and it's not fair. You know, otherwise you have to go to tasting. Unless we were like that and we had the end and we got it, then I'd be happy and not say fuck you. And then other people would be saying that to us. Well, you know, but it's not. So fuck it, whatever. Uh, You know, so anyways, you know, it's whiskey season is upon us. Tastings are happening. A lot of things are being set up. Uh, I was at another liquor top 10. They're having a whiskey sampling here next month. No, end of this month, I believe. So, you know, the time is upon you. If you really want to get a variety of tastes and kind of figure out what you like, go to a tasting. Go to a place that lets you sample the wares and, you know, and figure out what you like. Because this is just us. It's our reaction to whiskeys. We have our particular tastes and things that we like. But you might hate what we love and you might love something that we hate. So there isn't really a wrong answer. You know, we talk about like the weird trends and whiskeys and you know certain things that are super popular and i scratch my head because i think it's garbage people clearly really like it so it's just one of those things there's not a right or wrong answer there's a lot of whiskey snobs out there that you know like they get it because it's like super rare or whatever reason that people are snobs about (laughs) and they don't drink it we're we buy whiskey to drink it, and it, it's really that simple. And you should be drinking it. So, 
uh, I don't necessarily know that I'd ever. I mean, that's the reason why I'm into it is because I like the way that it tastes. Right. So it would be ridiculous if I was getting them and not drinking them. Right. Don't be one of those douches that buys it and then sells it in the aftermarket <laughs> for an unreasonable price. Yeah. If you sell it for a ethical markup, then that's cool. Anyways, so let's uh, let's get into the sniffing of this. It's been kind of hitting me a little bit as I've been talking. And just so everyone knows, we've let this breathe for probably about five minutes. So smell, I'm getting like light medicinal, maybe eucalyptus-y. Yeah. Menthol-y was, or something like that. So that typical rye. Yeah. I was going to say smell. like eucalyptus. But also kind of fruity as well mixed in with that. It's like if you were chewing spearmint gum and you threw juicy fruit in there too. <laughs> But like, probably sounds absolutely insane. Eating some bread. (laughs) There's a the best way that I could describe it is like, it's almost like a doughy. Like when I sniff it, I'm getting this like I'm chewing bread, but not like in a gross like mushy kind of way, but like, like you eat whole grain bread and you crack into like a seed and you kind of get that little spike of goodness i guess whatever the fuck that is words yeah, what is that i don't fucking know all right i'm tasting it yeah i do not remember it tasting like this it's definitely spicy from the rye Yep. And the whole like eucalyptus thing, menthol is cranked up. Yeah. This the taste profile is way stronger than the smell profile. Yeah. Peppery. Very short finish. Yeah. Like, it's gone in a flash. Now, with this, it's a little spicier than... It tastes like if you take a straight peppercorn and chew on it. Like, not you've peppered something mm-hmm. and it's a light pepper. Like, this is like a... You've got a peppercorn in your mouth and you you bit into a fresh one. Which is good. That's not, That's not a detrimental thing. Yeah, I don't. I definitely don't remember it being like this when I had it before. Well, if you're but, already partying and blasted, yeah. then you're not going to probably know the subtleties. But yeah, vegetal. Getting a little vegetalness out of it. <clears throat> I taste that. Like, if I swish it to the top of my mouth, I get that vegetal. And it's not a bad, overwhelming vegetal kind of thing going on. But it's a little subtle. Mm. 
I know. What do you think? What's your what's your my opinion? my real opinion? Just thinking about it right now is I would not tasting it. This is not something that I would want to buy at that price. If it was around the thirty thirty five dollar range, then I would. But I feel like there are better ryes for much cheaper. Michter's rye, Sazerac rye, right. either of those I would choose over this. It is, I mean, of those of the American rye, I'd say it's closer to something from MGP because of the higher rye mash bill that they have. And theirs is on the peppery side, but not quite like this. I would, I might pick this over, say, bullet rye. I'll agree with you on that. This is a lot more, I want to say flavorful. It's the, the different notes are more, they're punched up a little bit. Or bullet rye, you get this, like the spiciness isn't as, as potent. Mm-hmm. This is a little earthy too. And I feel like, yeah, compared to the nose on this thing, smelling it. Tasting it is much more intense. Yeah. I if if it tasted more like it smelled, I think I'd like it more. Yeah, I'll say as I've you know gotten through the finger of this, like it the earthiness lingers a little bit more. But not soil earthiness, but like like you're in a wheat field or you're in a rye field and like they've just cut it down that shit in the air like i was leaning more towards like earthy dirty dirt kind of thing basement floor not like <laughs> not not basement floor unless it's like a straight up dirt ba- basement floor but like bright fresh dirt like black dirt not that i don't think i've ever tasted it i don't have pica or anything (laughs) i will say definitively i don't want to pay what i paid for this i'll give this single barrel a chance when it shows up yeah but otherwise i probably won't get any more of this yeah i'm not i don't if this is the introduction of their line like i'm not it's not worth 80 you're not gonna pay 200 and some dollars for the 15 year version no it's not it isn't worth the money but then again all i can say is canada my least favorite place for whiskey to come from whether it's rye or otherwise so there you go uh i i think that's a fair that's our assessment is that it's Oof. I mean, I, I I've like had it. better 100% Canadian rye. Collingwood did a 21-year rye whiskey, and that shit was really good. It was a little on the thin side. The proof was a little lower. If they upped the proof, it would have been really awesome. But there was only, you know, X amount of barrels, and it was all released at once. So that was a one-and-done thing for them, too. So this is a 100 proof. We didn't really go over that. Yeah, 10 years, 100 proof, so 50% alcohol. It, you could taste the proof. I would say that if... You don't smell it. No. I would say that if this is a lower proof, I would probably like it less. I think the proof adds a little something to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 
I like it. I enjoy it, but I don't want to pay as much as what it's what they're selling it for. I think it's a little, little ridiculous that they're charging yeah. eighty eight bucks for that. So thank you for picking up the bottle, so I didn't have to. You're welcome. Uh, you know, it. I'm wondering if the people that I've talked to that have had this have gotten maybe the farm stock or the or some of the other ones, the higher year, the eight ones that are aged a little bit more. Not sure. I don't know. I don't know anyone who spent that much money on any of those. Well, they they have it at a bar, and that's where they tried it. They've got a at Dark Horse. Do they have the older ones at Dark Horse? I don't know. I didn't see any the last time I was there. And I've never been there. I just everyone keeps talking. My group of friends keep talking about it. Like you need to go. You need to go because for those that don't know. They apparently have a great whiskey selection. They have a lot of basic stuff. Like if you want to go and try and get some real good shit, it's either we're going to go to Marvel Bar or we're going to go to Constantine. Constantine will rip us off, but they got the hard to find stuff. Like I was just recently there and they've still got bottles of Pappy. How much is a finger of Pappy? I I don't remember. I just remember looking at the thing and like a normal pour is two ounces or whatever. And then when they got to the interesting stuff like that, then you're only getting a one ounce pour, and then the prices were stupid. Was it like forty dollars for an ounce pour? It may be like forty for the ten year Van Winkle or fifty for something like that, which is stupid because that's how much a bottle costs of that. That's so. interesting. If you get it at retail, I'll just keep saying that. But at Marvel or at Handsome Hog, sometimes Handsome Hog has some good stuff too. I've gotten George T. Stagg there before and a few other things, but like they're a little more reasonable. Marvel Bar was the most reasonable of the places that I had it when I went there. That's that's really good to know. So folks, you're looking for whiskey tasting, reasonable pours, reasonable prices, that's probably a place to go. I went to uh, a place, fuck, what was it called? I forget, some place in Uptown and they charged $20 for a pour of hibiki, which I thought was not. We actually talked about this yeah. last episode. I think that's really unreasonable for a non-age stated. Even if it was Manny's and they did a Manny's pour of that, Tony Bucks would be like, Ehh. Yeah, I don't know. and that's like, that's a literally a third of the cost of the fucking bottle. Yeah. It's 70. You can... It varies by like a couple of dollars here and there. It's usually never more than seventy three bucks. I've seen it for as low as sixty five bucks at a place, which I sh- maybe sh- I I'm kind of running low. It's a Hibiki Harmony is one of those ones that I like to have around because it's a really good whiskey and it's really light. So for people that are just getting into it, I think that's a really good introduction into whiskey. Yeah, because it's not it doesn't smack you over the head with really strong like earthy tones or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, that's, it's a, I'm a little, I like it, but I'm disappointed that it wasn't, it didn't like just totally knock my socks off. Like if it was a single barrel or if it was like a cask strength or, you know, there's not really anything in this bottle that I'm tasting that justifies the price point. No. Anyways, that's our opinion. Let's, uh, let's move along. So, uh, something when we get in before the main subject, I have been playing Spider-Man, pick that up. And, uh, 
some things that I want to talk about with the game a little bit. So I picked it up Friday. I've been playing it throughout the weekend. And uh, it's made by Insomniac. They made the Infamous series. So one of the first things that I want to say is that it's like playing Infamous. Just swap out like Cole or the other antagonist and put Spider-Man in it. It really feels like one of their games. Like all of their classic game mechanics of like unlocking a map and all these little collecting. So do you feel it was half-assed then? Did they just reskin the main character and then call it a day? I felt like the Infamous series was always an audition to do a Marvel game. Like that's what it felt like because it was their spin on superheroes. But they did it in their own way. They did their own spin. And they took those mechanics and certain kind of like, it really reminds me of Infamous Second Son and maybe because uh, like it's on the same generation of console, like both came out in PlayStation 4. Uh, it really, like the characters, the animation, what people look like are very similar to that game. And, uh, but it makes you feel like Spider-Man. Like you play it, you feel like Spider-Man. The world is all of like the island of New York. It The map is huge. And one of the things I appreciate about the game is the level of attention. So you could go across any building and you could look inside of them and see like a room and furniture and stuff going on. And like all the streets are always filled with people. Like you go out on top of a roof and there's like rooftop patios and there's people talking and you can interact with them. So it's a vibrant game. There's a lot of stuff going on. They do some interesting interpretations of classic villains. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the the plot point too much. And especially because I'm, you know, 35% done with the game like I'm level 20 ish uh I'm really enjoying it so far um it is not a perfect even nine like so far I'm giving the game an eight like I know a lot of other places have given it like a little bit higher rating but like at the end of the day like i'm left wanting a little bit more it takes a little bit to learn the controls like i died a lot in the beginning of this game because just figuring out how oh you didn't get a two-hour tutorial that shows you everything you need to fucking do in the game there was a tutorial in it but just like how you're used to certain mechanics it it does its own thing so it was a little bit difficult getting used to that and i you know as I'm playing and I'm getting better at the mechanics and knowing how to, but he's really like, you could overshoot a lot. So like, say you're going between buildings and you're webbing around. Um, it's easy to like, f- like way overshoot what you're trying to get to. Like, it's hard to kind of like be precise and which kind of makes sense. Cause you're literally swinging your body mass around. So it's not necessarily a, a precise thing, but I'm really enjoying it. It's it's something I would suggest people pick up if they like Spider-Man and want to get to live in that world and 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 breathe in it. It takes place. He's graduated high school. He's graduated college. He's actually in the world working now. He's a working stiff on top of being Spider-Man. So I like that it's not an intro story. I like that he's a little, you know, weather-worn and, and kind of got, lived a little life. Uh, he's still smart-ass, still Peter Parker. Um, and then I blasted through the Iron Fist season two. 
and uh, I know that you just started to watch it, and you're having a little troubles with it. It's still boring. I so I I think I blasted it the entire series in two sittings. Like I I definitely bit. I don't usually binge watch. So for folks out there listening, like I'm a terrible at like watching movies with or watching TV series with because I can't sit down. And it actually caught my attention and really like got me to stick around. So uh, it's way better than season one. Way better. That the, I can't imagine is too hard to do. No. But they really, it seems like they really took a lot of the the feedback from season one and really made a concerted effort to avoid, like, there's no boardroom scenes. There's no business scenes. There's none of that bullshit. Uh, it really focuses on the story. And, and it, the interesting characters are not Danny Rand. He's better. He's not such a whiny little bitch. He's still there a little bit. Uh, but Colleen Wing and Misty Knight, like you just want them, like the the daughters of the dragon or whatever their little team up is. You want that so badly now at the end of the season because they they're in this, and Colleen Wing is just as much a main part of the story as Danny Rand is to offset. I think how terrible he is, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not gonna blame the actor. I just think it's how he's written and how what they've set up for him. It just doesn't come across very good, but he's better. Everything is better. So I would suggest watching it out for you. I would, I mean, I'll probably finish it. It'll be on while I'm doing other things is basically what it comes down to. Cause like I had it on today and I was on my phone screwing around, of course. Yeah. Or I'll have it on and I'll be washing dishes or some shit. I getting drunk and not paying attention. <laughs> So those are just a couple of things that I want to talk about before we get into the Apocalypse Trilogy. So uh, we're going to cover the things specifically. And what I want to do is uh, read a quote from um, John Carpenter, and it's in regarding the Apocalypse Trilogy. And he says, all three of those movies are in a way or in, in one way or another about the end of things, about the end of everything, the world we know, but in different ways each of those things is a kind of apocalyptic kind of movie, but a very different take on it per each movie. So uh, they are not actually sequels to each other in any sort of way. There's, they're not even made even remotely close to each other. It's like 82, 86, 92, 94 maybe. So there's quite a bit of time between them, but thematically they're considered the apocalypse trilogy. Um, And so some of the themes that are about it uh, are the destruction of free will, which we saw in the mouth of madness, uh, the futile attempt to delay or escape the inevitable. So with these, as you said in uh, the second take of uh, one of the other ones is like, the stakes are really small. Uh, As we see like the beginning of, Mm -hmm. of the apocalypse, but it's like in each one of these movies, they're trying to postpone or stop this terrible, terrible event being alien, literal devil coming, or the end of sanity, whatever it is. Each one of these, the main characters, the character, the protagonists are trying to stop change. And so in a way, you know, it's really kind of, 
you know, in some way you could say it's dealing with death, like the inevitability of death, the inevitability that the world is going to change. In the Moth of Madness, can be taken in a lot of ways, uh, say that the world changes and you don't. And so you could feel misplaced in a rapidly changing world. Uh, or, you know, fear of technology, fear of, of things getting beyond your control, which I think could be maybe a, a theme of the thing. It's another sort of H.P. Lovecraft-inspired story in the sense that it takes place in the Antarctic and there's weird fucking crazy aliens. Tentacle-y creatures. Creepy crawlies. And so, yeah, this is the things, I think it's 82. Uh, it, it would be the first of the Apocalypse trilogy. This is probably one of the best polished John Carpenter movies. I definitely, I would say that. It, it's a big budget horror movie. Did abysmal at the box office when it initially came out. Uh, but we talked about in the, uh, the other movies, like those other movies are low budget and you can kind of see like the spaghetti against the wall, kind of like see what sticks and see what happens. And, and some of the movie making magic is purely accidental and some of those other movies where this one is big budget. There's a lot of stuff going on to keep the story consistent, the visuals consistent, and it fares the best out of all of them. Yes. So you go into the thing. What's your... So the, I know I've probably said it before, but the thing is my personal favorite horror movie but then sometimes I think about it and I'm like, is this really a straight up horror movie or is it something else though too? It's sci-fi. A bit of sci-fi. Thriller, maybe. It's my favorite sci-fi thriller horror movie. <laughs> there you go. I would say that it definitely plays out mostly as a horror, but some of those other elements to spice it up. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, again, like I said before, you can definitely tell that the the money and intent was there for this one. I mean, it looks better than everything else. The acting is better in this movie. You've got better actors, you know, known actors. Kurt Uh, Russell, baby. Yes. Big box office draws, even though. Keith David. It Mm. didn't. uh, Wilford Brimley. Oh, yeah. Uh, You're right. Absolutely. So it's got the, the money's there. The effects are there. The overall look is there. I mean, it's the complete package. It has aged well. My favorite horror movie. Uh, one of my favorite practical effect movies. I will definitely say. I don't. Did that movie win an Oscar for practical effects? I don't remember I don't if it did. I don't really keep up on that kind of thing. That's as you're saying. Like, it's superior completely overall the practical effects are fucking phenomenal you figure 1982 it's sort of the resurgence of practical effects at that particular time and uh the shit that they do i to to this day it looks absolutely amazing yeah and it's one of those things you're like there's some delicate creepy crawly weird effects you know the the tentacles moving and like all those like those are puppets that have to move and 
They've got to hide all those cables. There's no CGI in this movie, folks. So all that shit, they've got to hide, incorporate into the, the maquettes and all the effects. And it's all done in camera. And for that, like, it just looks like it's actually happening. I will say that this movie is the best as far as, like, consistent ratcheting up of intensity and, like... The, the tension is definitely there. Like, you... There's a sense of dread that continues to build throughout the movie and this paranoia that I really love, and it's palpable in not only the acting, but, like, the score and how it's shot. It continues to, like... The shots get, like, tighter, and you become more claustrophobic, and you really, like, question a lot of, like... Could it be you? Could it be who? Who you don't know because it looks like at some point, some of those people didn't even know that they were taken over, or you didn't know that they were taken over. They might have known, but now here is the creature, right? Replicating them, right? And but like, did they re- replicate them so perfectly that they didn't know that they were replicated until? the defense mechanism takes yeah. over. Does it does it replicate memories as well as it's absorbing things? You don't interesting point. I've never thought of that before. See? So, I as far as like really good storytelling, like they really spent the time to really flesh out something consistently terrifying and it's well, I shit, I have to go back to that now. Because here you've got this creature, it's capable of space travel. Mm-hmm. So did some alien race that was capable of space travel go somewhere to where this creature was? This creature absorbed them and then, you know, going to eat your brains and gain your knowledge type thing. And then that's how it learned how to make the spaceship. And that's how, when it was Wilford Brimley, he yeah. was digging down in that hole making another spaceship. And what I love about it is that you don't know. It is a a faceless, for the most part, you really don't know its motivation. Because in reality, you could almost skew the movie to be flipped where it's an alien trying to escape being imprisoned. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you mm-hmm. could flip the perspective to, like, it's doing a daring escape. Yeah. You don't, we don't know. And that's what I like about... Right, it cra- it's, there's something wrong with the spaceship. It crashes on Earth. It's trying to get out of freezes, yep. so it's imprisoned that way. Gets taken out, gets out, and is trying to just get away. Yeah, and we don't like. Yes, it's absolutely like horrifying idea that you're literally being taken over by some sort of intelligent biological force, and so. In that, it's also a body horror movie. So that's the other, like, hyphen to it is body horror. So, you know, Cronenberg does this really well. He's probably most known director of body horror. But this one, it's also, you know, like, it you being taken over and you not knowing, like, you know that there's a threat, but, like, the idea that your body's being taken over and you have no control over it, like... To me, like, that fucking gets me going. There's not a lot of horror movies that, like, I'm necessarily that scared of. Like, movie monsters don't scare me. But, like, if there's a fucking virus that's going to change me into a deformed thing, like, that's fucking legitimately terrifying to me. Yeah. Like, 
So I think that this movie works on a lot of, because it is a monster movie because you have the creatures. It's also body horror because it could be you. And that's a thriller because you're trying to figure out, they're trying to figure out who the bad guy is Mm -hmm. in essence, but you don't know. And so it's just very smartly done. And they just don't make, they do. They make television this good now, but they don't make movies necessarily this good anymore. You know, the only thing I could think of is like, like X, X Machina or Annihilation, like some of those smaller budget independent movies that really uh, dive into a lot of those deeper existential ideas, but you don't see it in big budget movies. Like, and, and the fact of the matter is, is anytime that you see a big budget movie really dig into an existential threat or what it is to human, they don't, it doesn't typically do very well. Blade Runner 2049 did not do that well, even though it's one of the best sci-fi movies I've seen in the last 15 years easily. I can't think of another movie released anytime soon that is that good. I mean, what do you like? As far as a sci-fi movie? Yeah. Sci-fi. Like you got Blade Runner. And then what's the next best one that you've seen you could think of that's not a classic movie? I don't know. I'm I could I'm sure I can think of something though. I just can't at the moment being forced. It'll come to me later. Sure. And I'll totally forget about it. Maybe Terminator two. But that's yeah, older than fifteen years, so Point being is that, you know, the usually typically the bigger the budget is, the dumber the movie is in general. I don't, yeah. you know, part of it's like, I feel like when you do something too heady, it's going to fail at the box office. It's, that's just the way it is. You dump $300 million yeah. into something and you, and your budget, your, your projection has to be half a billion dollars to cut even then it's going to be a hard... Like, the movie did really well overall. Blade Runner 2049, I do believe, made all its money back. But movie studios aren't in the business of just making their money back. They're hoping for a smash $1 billion runaway hit. For a Marvel movie. They're hoping for a They're, they're looking movie. for a Marvel movie. You know, Marvel's really cracked. You know, I will give them props because they're able to make movies that are enjoyable for everybody. A hardcore Marvel fan, a just a general audience movie fan, a kid, an adult, you can get something out of a, typically any Marvel movie, and each one of them have their own little flavor. Like they might be a galactic thing or whatever it is, but they're really good at that. You know, it, the exception being like this last Avengers was fucking bleak as fuck, which I liked. I'm like, yes. Kill I mean, me. not as much as it really was, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so like at the point, but time back into the thing is like, that was a major budget movie. It had actually scary things in it and it was well executed. Those practical effects. I've seen the making of the movie and, and focusing on the practical effects. And it's really like, you think about the person that conceptualized those effects, built them, got them to perform and then ultimately fil- put like filmed them. Mm-hmm. Like that's an amazingly complex process that is 
flawlessly executed. Now, did you hear, I think they had a, was it the 35th anniversary of the movie? That's about right, yeah. Came on 82, 35 years-ish? Yeah. So they finally came to, they finally figured out the conclusion of if one of them was infected or not at the very end between Keith David and Kurt Russell. Uh Do you know, did you hear about it? I did not. So they buried a visual cue into the movie to let you know if someone was infected or not the entire time. And it's been there since the movie came out. There is a visual indicator if someone is infected. Do you want to hear it? Do you want me to ruin it for you? Yeah, of course I do. So in the movie... The non-infected, their eyes shine. There's a reflection in their eyes. The infected eyes have no shine. There's no reflection in them. I'll have to go back and watch it because that's not something that I noticed. It's so subtle, but so I think that's so brilliant that they they'd they'd left a clue that if you were super observant, like and obviously no one was. It took the person, one of the people making the movies, to point that out. To like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. But that's the level of detail that went into making this movie. Like, it was done by a very large group of very well, uh, you know, talented people. And it was so meticulously laid out that they gave you a visual clue as to who was infected and who wasn't this entire time. So I I haven't gone back and seen it since I heard about it. Um, I have the movie. I should. We didn't watch it again just for timeliness of preparation of doing this episode. I've seen it so many times. I've seen the movie so many times too. And that's something you never picked up, right? No. Isn't that crazy? And it's like going back in another movie that I've watched a lot is Scott Pilgrim. And I see all these other, you know, visual clues and hints and secrets that are hidden in there. (laughs) Excuse me. See all these other things. That's something that I've never even thought about. But then, you know, a lot of the shots... It's not that close up on someone's face, so I feel like that would be kind of tough to pick up on. You don't know unless you go back and watch it. I don't know, and I'm going to have to go back and watch it and see what I see, if that's an actual thing. So they're going to do a 4K remaster coming up here uh, from Scream Factory, which I'm really excited about. So, you know, I think I'll pick the movie up then. And watch it in all its glory. Of course, it'll probably have that that weird, you know, effect to it that makes it almost look like 120 hertz. Maybe I hope not. I hope it was just that that was um, because of low budget. And soap operas are typically low budget, and it has that weird look. Yeah, it, it could. And I don't know what the original intent is, and I don't know that that movie was restored to John Carpenter's vision either. I, th- I think a lot of times these movies are are being remastered and they're not, unless they're the Godfather or something, like the directors aren't necessarily that heavily involved because they're going back and remastering all of John Carpenter's movies. He's not necessarily making movies now. He's touring with his band, his lifelong dream, it seems like. It's fucking awesome that we got to see that. Yeah. So, yeah, for everyone, we he was in the Minneapolis area last winter, fall, November, November. And we got to go see him live. And that was like, 
it was shortly after my birthday. I remember that. So I was like, oh, birthday, awesome thing to do for my birthday. And I, like, we were both kind of hesitant to go see it. Like, it was expensive. So, yeah, for, for a lot, for what it was, I went, I would not like pay the money that it it was like 50 bucks. Yeah. If it were anyone else, I would have not, I would have been like, go fuck yourself. I'm not going to pay $50 to see your dumb shit. But it's, you know, I, what I was thinking, like, before going in there, it's like, okay, it's 50 bucks. All right, it's my birthday thing. This is John Carpenter. This is the guy who's made some of my very favorite movies, playing music from my very favorite movies in person, the guy who made some of my very favorite movies. So I, I, you know, I had to do it. And it turned out being fucking amazing. So it was totally worth it. It was worth it. Uh, And it being in there, you really, like, man, like, getting the live instrumentation like it just blasted at you, and he was having a good time. Like he was way into it. Yeah, it was one of those things that was very well worth the money. Once in a lifetime experience. He's old as fuck. Yeah, so. it's, it's this is definitely a project of passion for him. That's for sure. So you know what? If this is what he does instead of making shitty movies, then now because he does again after in the mouth of madness, he made Village of the damned after in the mouth of madness and there's a bunch of other ones but they were like like escape from la Ooh, bad uh real bad uh what is it the martian movie escape from mars or something mars that was a fucking awful movie he made he did make the ward with uh amber heard vampires Vampires. but i i never watched that i when I saw, I didn't even realize it was John Carpenter when it happened. And I just saw the preview and was like, yeah, I'm not really like, I love horror movies, but I'm not the type of person that has to see every horror movie that comes out. Like I'm very particular about the fact that it has to be quality horror movies and not just in it because of the genre. Like I'm not a a total schlock uh, (laughs) fan. You sure. I mean, I like schlocky horror movies, but like of a particular era, not, you know, uh, basically when I was a kid, I'm all about that life. But like now, you know, like watching Critters is one thing, but like if they made Critters now, I'd be like, I'm not fucking seeing that movie. That looks dumb. And that's just me being bitter, I guess, really. Uh, But yeah, let me hold on here. Like, I think. uh, So. Yeah, the last movie he did, yeah, Ghosts of Mars. That's what I thought it was, yeah. Yeah, that was, he did Vampires, holy shit. It's another awful movie. Yeah. And then The Ward. The Ward is the last movie he made, that was 2010. And I think at this point, it's probably good that he doesn't do movies. I don't, and again, this is one of those things, like, I wonder, as you get older, do you lose creativity? Like, do you lose the ability to be an inventive, creative storyteller? Because look at how many directors, as they've got, got older, became shit. Is it because they're getting older or because they lose the passion for the thing that they're doing? It's a really... I don't know. I, I don't think so. Like, Francis Ford Coppola has not made any good movies recently. The, the one movie that I did like that was maybe shot in the 2000s was Youth Without Youth 
Um, it has Timothy Roth in it, where it's kind of a curious case of Benjamin Button sort of thing. But like, it's it's so fucking weird that I give him a pass on it. Like, I'm like, okay, this is this is such a weird fucking movie that I'm like, I enjoyed it. Whereas like, you know, look at George Lucas, Clone Wars awful, or sorry, the the prequels awful, universally panned. And he was passionate about them. This was something that he wanted to do. It was a story arc that he wanted he's, to tell. He's real passionate about ruining things, yeah. is what I really get. But that he also, you know, he did that one uh, World War II airplane drama, which was fucking shitty. He did this like three, four, five years ago, whatever it was. So bad, you don't even know what the fuck I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I don't. I'm making a, like, my brow's all wrinkled and shit as I'm trying to think of what it could be. But if you think about like George, so George Lucas, other than Star Wars, really the, probably the best movie he made was American Graffiti, which was like the second movie he ever made. Yeah. So even Steven Spielberg, his movies have progressively gotten shittier. And I don't know if that's because if you're into industry so long, you become affected by it and you start to become the thing that you try to not be. Cause like all those guys, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, um, Steven Spielberg, they're all part of American Zoetrope. Like they're all part of that same group of filmmakers that started that anti seventies movie movement. And started doing things on their own that was refreshing. That's where we got all of these movies that we love, you know. Uh, but now, like, they're all kind of, like, lost. They're all part of the Hollywood institution of making shitty movies. And I, I kind of wonder that. Like, I'm trying to think of, like, a filmmaker who's made really quality movies into being old. And maybe, oh, fuck, what's his name? Scorsese. Scorsese. Like, Wolf of Wall Street was a really good movie, and that was made well into it. was a good movie. <laughs> and he was pretty fucking old, and he's going to do another... I think he's got a few other things lined up. And he still makes really, I think, some really good... Not ever, all of them are, uh, like, spot on, but he still has the ability to make some really classic movies. And, like, and I'm, like, wondering if that's what happened to John Carpenter. Like, you just get old, you get petered out, you don't have as many things to say. Like, I think when you're young, you've got a lot more to say. Like, even now, like, we do this, but I don't have anything profound to say. Like, I'm not pontificating, like, trying to solve the world's issues. I don't have anything to add to any of that shit. I don't know. I don't have an, like, I have an opinion on it, but I know it's terrible and not worth listening to, so I'm not going to say I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, I kind of, I wonder about that, you know, like, the things that you love only grow to disappoint you when you get old. I tell you, there's not a lot of things I still care about. So I I think, you know, I love Carpenter. I think he has affected me in a lot of my tastes, certainly my musical tastes. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about um, that ties into John Carpenter a little bit, at least I feel, is I got into uh, Comtrues. So I don't understand how I did not get instantly turned on to Com Trues. Like, because we had a conversation earlier, like musical artists, musical artists, Com Trues. So 
which makes sense because we're talking about John Carpenter and he writes all the music for his movies, performs it, that sort of thing. So this heavy synthesizer based. So Comtrues is a is known as synthwave. He has a longer name for what he does because he kind of considers himself ambient music. It's all it's heavily synthesized it's, based. It's very much an outlier to the genre, of course. But I mean, I would just saying it one in one thing: synth wave. Yeah, being if we want to put like a very fine point on it, being that it's an '80s synthesizer inspired music it, it takes yeah. that motive and then does new and interesting things with those sound sets and you know tropes of that kind of music and Comtrues in a way takes a lot of like what John Carpenter did and turns it into music now the interesting thing did you know that his first album Galactic Melt was based on a movie that was never written in his brain. He imagined it as a soundtrack to a movie. That's interesting that you say that because a lot of synthwave albums, a lot of that is seen as like someone is making a soundtrack to a non-existent movie. Like Perturbator does the same thing. Yeah. A lot of artists do that. So like if there was a movie, this is what the soundtrack would sound like. So that's that's a common thing within that style of music. So, and I think that really works for the genre. So you know, when if you're listening to electronic music, there are no singers. There might be vocal elements into it, but usually in uh, most modern music, the vocalist carries the song all the way through. They're they're the link that kind of ties all those elements together. So if you were to remove vocal elements from most music, especially pop music, it would sound like trash. You're like, what the fuck is this? Most <laughs> most modern music doesn't work without the vocals tying it all together. And so soundtracks have to work in cue to a story. They're story cues essentially. So they can, you know, add tension to a scene or they can add tenderness to a scene or they can add like excitement. And so John Carpenter being the king, that's what he does. He writes these great synth scores to his music that really they're as much part of his him as his movies are like you you know like his music is as as important to those movies as the visuals are definitely you know what i mean so calm true is like when i was listening to galactic melt like i had like these feelings of the blade runner soundtrack uh john carpenter movies and then like a evolution of like the stuff that I listened to like all the way up to that point. Like I really love AFX twin AFX and he like, especially like the late eighties AFX stuff sounds very similar. And, and like galactic melt has these weird, like twitchy complicated bits thrown in through it. Like a very basic. It's a, a very uh, calm truth thing, which you'll see in, all of his albums. He, he definitely has his very own style, and that is part of it. So, and to me, that was taken straight out of AFX. Like, for people that don't know a AFX Twinner, it's Richard D. James is the is the guy. He's been making electronic music forever, and he's most known for the Come to Daddy music video with the creepy kids in his face, and like the and making these crazy music videos in the in the mid to late nineties. Uh, but he's considered 
basically the Mozart of electronic music. And, you know, he's one of those people that design and make his own electronic equipment. And he's really the forefather of a lot of these weird subgenres, you know, like Twitch music. So like a lot, like if you listen to like a classic Aphex Twin record, it's all of these weird aura of sounds, like these super fast glitchy drums, all of these elements that you like sound like complete chaos, but are completely melodic at the same time. And that's the other thing about Com Trues is that his music is very melodic and like it, like you could put it in a car and travel and it takes you on a, like literally takes you on a journey. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's what I love about. And he's got a trilogy of albums that are meant exactly to do that. Uh, Silicon Tare is one of them. Yeah. I think that's the second part in Galactic Melt was the first, or there's something else. He's got a few EPs too that go along with it. And it's one of those, it's what I like about it is like, it is an album format style of music where you, he does have some standout tracks like VHS Sex or Broken Date, I think are like the things that people instantly pick up on as like being Calm True's tracks. Uh, but like you listen to the whole thing and it like washes over you as a film soundtrack. And I think it's interesting that that's a, a hallmark of that particular style because uh it's such an interesting way to listen to music and be affected by music and, and taking that way of keeping your interest. That's so hard to do with electronic music because again, you don't have vocals. So you don't have that element tying all those various things together to keep your attention. So how do you keep your attention to electronic music? Either you've got a lot of fucking shit going on. That's like crazy or it's like really repetitive and like it's dance music or you add vocal. And he does add a few vocal elements here and there, but not mm-hmm. very much. Yeah. And so I like that idea that you take a soundtrack format, John Carpenter, and uh, you can listen to it. It keeps your attention. So I just wanted to talk about that. Like I'm kind of ashamed that I never picked him up and I'm so bummed that I missed him when he was around. Yeah. So, I mean, going off of that, how you're saying like it lends itself to listening through you aren't picking, you know, certain tracks like with a lot of pop music. There's like, oh, this is good, but the rest is trash. I also think that that is a big part of the reason why synthwave works so well on vinyl and has become such a big thing. Because with the vinyl record, you know, you aren't skipping tracks or anything. You're listening from start to finish going all the way through. And having, you know, music that's set up like a soundtrack that's telling a story that you're going all the way through lends itself yeah. really well to listening to the whole album as a thing. Right. So it it's such a niche, weird... It's not a huge... It's certainly not like EDM. No. I fucking hate EDM. So do I. And you know what? That really pisses me off because some people will ask me like, what kind of music are you into? And you try to explain synthwave to them and be like, okay, it is an electronic music. They instantly think of like EDM or like dubstep or some shit like that. And that just drives me up the fucking wall because I don't want to be known as that fucking bro who thinks this shit is cool. Like I have an ex-girlfriend who I'm still friends with who goes out of her way to tell me that she's going to be hanging out with dead mouse. And it's like, really? I mean, first of all, I don't know if that's even true or not. And it's like, second, I don't give a shit because fuck that guy. Yeah. I, 
yeah, there's there's a whole electronic music in a in a general sense is such it's an infinite spectrum within itself. It's fucking on the spectrum. <laughs> it is it, it, yeah, it's it is the spectrum. <laughs> uh but there's there's so much broad things to it and EDM as so apparently EDM I think is I think maybe the number one form of music popularity wise and I think rap is behind it and then everything else is falls down the the echelon so like the big draws uh, EDM DJs are making millions and millions and millions of dollars like they are doing better than everyone else like you know uh, las vegas is a big draw for edm artists like vegas one of the things because i was watching after the after the sunset tommy sunshine has a series of netflix i forget what it is and i'm sorry tommy because it's really good uh he goes to different cities and explores the electronic music scene in each city he goes to las vegas and one of the things he talks about in there is that las vegas couldn't draw young people and the the crowd became more and more geriatric. And one of the things that they figured out to draw the youth in was bringing in EDM artists. So they brought in a whole bunch of people. And I don't really, I don't, I don't follow that particular, like Martin Garrix and some other fuckers and whatever. And I, I don't know. It's not my thing, uh, but it's taken over what people know of as electronic music. And it's such a broad varied and actually a, a very beautiful thing and and so synthwave is it's just this weird little nugget offshoot side thing and calm truths is even an even offshoot fur- of that an yeah. offshoot even further and did you hear about how he got into it because like i heard this album like i need to know everything about this dude so there's not a huge amount but like he was doing he refers to calm truths as a project which I think is really interesting. Yes. His, his name is Seth Healy, I believe, is his actual it. name. Yeah. So he doesn't, ref- like, when he talks about Comtrues, it's not like he's talking about himself or, like, he's not self-important. It's like a thing that he could stop at any pr- point in time, and it's not. And he basically started as, like, a joke. Like, he didn't like 80s, like, kind of music at all. And he had, like was listening to something like he liked some of like the drum uh, patterns from that type of music. And then he got into it and it was like, he was working in an advertising agency and a record label found him on SoundCloud and said, Hey, what do you want to do with your life? And picked him up from there. Uh, And so now he's, you know, must've been ghostly international because I know he's done all of his releases. That's who it was. Well, he had, apparently he had a bunch of record labels offer and he eventually just went back to ghostly and went with them because that worked best for him. And what I like is just like, he seems like just a regular dude. Like he's not egotistical or full of himself or, and and I can really appreciate that about it. Someone who's creative that's not like self-important because that shit drives me crazy, and uh, but yeah, so it's it's kind of ambient. It's definitely like a movie soundtrack. It's heavy synths, uh, and it's just it's one of those things that you you just kind of slide into. And I heard it changed my life. Like I was like, this I love this. Yeah, it's so we had talked about this before the show. Um, 
that was Com Trues was my introduction into synthwave, and now that's like mostly what I'm into. My Instagram page that's strictly for vinyl records is almost completely focused on synthwave. I'll throw a few things out once in a while, but that's the majority of what it is. And they're it's crazy. So it's it's taken over my life as well as far as musical interests. You know, I think it's funny. Sometimes you see people talk about like, ooh, you know, up to a certain age, like when you're in high school or shortly thereafter, that's like the music that you'll like for the rest of your life. And then you don't find new stuff like you just stick with that. And that's going to be you until you're yeah. done. Like my stepdad listening to garbage 70s rock all the time. And it's right. just but I keep finding, you know, in my older age, now, <laughs> I keep finding new music that I like and like this synthwave scene that's emerged and is exploding right now, at least in my small world, is it's really doing it for me. So let me throw something at you a little bit. OK, because in reality, you're not necessarily finding a new style of music that you're loving because it's taking elements from your childhood, 80s music, and taking modern ish electronic music and combining them so it's a hybrid of things that you already know and love not necessarily a new thing maybe but like metal if you're listening to finding new metal bands i mean you could say the same thing they're taking fair point you're absolutely right because you could be stuck at like listening to like megadeth and Metallica. I mean, there's nothing wrong listening to Rust in Peace still because that's a no, great a fucking great, album. It's a great <laughs> album. But if you never, if you shut everything else out. Yeah, you don't pursue did, anything from there on forward, yes. Yeah, then like that's very common. And another very interesting thing is, is a lot of fans of Synthwave now were big like metal fans. So that's like become now a natural progression of metal fans is to switch from metal and now be huge into synthwave. It's a funny thing that you say that because like a lot of electronic underground artists that I really like started out in metal bands. So I really love, and he doesn't exist anymore. He's called ASCII disco and he's a German electronic. And he kind of was all over the place as far as what he did, but he started off in like, uh, like drone metal bands in Germany. And then he switched to like electronic music and he played around with like every kind of genre, like within that particular world. But like, that's a very common thing. Certainly myself, I was metal and then I became more and more electronic as I got older. Yeah. And that was, that was me. I made that progression. I mean, there's a great meme for it too. You know, if you've ever seen the meme of the guy walking with his girlfriend and he's turning around to look at the other girl, <laughs> yeah. like the girlfriend who's looking at a mad is labeled as like metal. And then the girl walking by that he's looking at is, you know, labeled as synthwave. And also another funny thing is one of the biggest record labels in synthwave music, electronic purification records used to be a black metal record label called um essential purification records so it's like funny not only are the fans doing the same thing but the record companies are transitioning along with that like they used to be strictly metal now they've dumped that completely and only do synthwave releases it's crazy i and like i love it so much like it makes me want to make music again for those that don't know like there's a brief period of my life where I released a couple of records, an Irish record label, made a lot of electronic music, 
a lot when I was a lot younger, my early twenties, and uh, and like I just lost the juice and I stopped doing it, you know. But synthwave like gets me like I want to make music again. Like it's it, yeah, it's inspired me. Like I used to be play guitar and do the metal bands, and now I'm like I really need to get a synthesizer, and I need to start playing around with this. I wouldn't know what I was doing, so I've kept myself from doing it thus far. But I've already picked out what I want <laughs> if I do get one. Yeah, there. It's that's the thing. That's like, like I listen to those, you know, that stuff. I'm like, man, this is this is something I want to do because like it reminds me so much of like the fun experimentation and like taking things that I love, sounds that I love, and creating this thing. And I don't, you know, it, it's again we're. It's debatable whether or not it's uh, a new form of music or whatever. It's certainly a genre, a very distinct genre that within itself is actually pretty wide. I would say mostly the thing is you're using either synths or musical tropes of the 80s era and incorporating them into new music. Yeah, I would just say like inspired by synthesizer-based stuff from the 80s. As long as there's any sort of feeling of you know something that was there in the 80s that's why i call it yeah it's a lot of people now you know on the internet of course like to get into arguments is you know what's still synthwave or not like now a lot of people are saying there's an artist who goes by the name ghost g-o-s-t um saying that his newest album is not synthwave and his older ones are, so he can no longer be classified into this just oh, because Jesus of his Christ. newest album is not. But it it's it, what's crazy to me is okay, his newest album has a lot of stuff that was based off of metal because he used to be in metal bands. Of course, another person making this transition from one genre to another. So they only focus on that where there's like you know the screaming and the you know metal voices, but he also does clean singing of stuff that sounds like very New Order or Depeche Mode, and that no one ever considers that they just focus on the other thing. So it's just like they say, that's a very interesting thing you bring up. So you brought up like New Wavey, uh, Depeche Mode, New Order, that sort of thing. You know, I'm kind of wondering like. A lot of metal fans that I know are also secret, like, Depeche Mode fans. Like, they did a... Uh, Everyone is, though. <laughs> you would not believe how much shit I get for liking Depeche Mode. Who are these people that you know? It's like, here's a great and loved band. I know. That's still going strong today. But, you know, if you look at the uh, the tribute to Depeche Mode, it was pretty much all metal bands that were doing tributes to Depeche Mode. And it wasn't like a metal tribute to Depeche Mode. It was just well-known bands of lots of different stripes recording. So like Rammstein and there's a whole bunch of other ones that like Rammstein is very metal industrial. Yeah. But then I think about it. It's like, would the pop stars who are around now they probably wouldn't give a shit about them or just pop stars in general make popular music. I would say, so there's, there's a big distinction we got to talk about. Pop performers is really what we're talking about. They're not really artists. No, that's true. So you look good. You maybe got some moves and you have a shapeable voice that either is actually good or 
can be modulated enough mm-hmm. yeah. to sound good. I don't really know that they have any. I don't know what they're in. They're not even allowed to have influences. It's like, yeah, Beyonce would never do a Depeche Mode cover. No. When we're talking about pop artists, they're actually few and far between. And they're usually really, like, if you think, like, Prince. Prince is, like, his own thing in the ether. And he was, in, you know, inspired by jazz and these other elements. Not influenced by necessarily other pop music. Or George Michael. He would be, I would consider, a pop artist. Because he wrote all of his own lyrics. wrote And, and produced his own and shit, pro- too. And recorded yeah. his own shit. Like, that dude was way more, like talented than, than like initially you would like imagine but yeah it's like you wouldn't think that in his wham days but in george michael yeah yes so you, you think about now. artists is <laughs> what we're talking about here but you think about like lady gaga might be the closest i, th- I think she writes at least her own lyrics and probably her own melodies i don't necessarily know that she writes her own music maybe sia there's few and far between like pop artists still around. It's their pop performers who are put together and packaged and sent. And that's always been the case. It's always the pop artists are few and far between and everyone apes them going forward. Cause they do something interesting. Uh, so yeah, they wouldn't know about Depeche mode because I feel like, you know, like if you're of a certain age and a certain kind of, well, that's not true. They have millions of fans. Depeche Mode is an amazing, but I think most pop people, like I talk to people, even my age or younger or whoever, they're like, who's Depeche Mode? I'm like, who the fuck are you? How do you not know Depeche Mode? And you, and, and I always say, you know Depeche Mode probably by three or four songs. Because they're that ubiquitous to pop yeah, culture. You, you know them. You just don't know, know you them. know them. Right, exactly. And so I think it's interesting that people that are actually truly inspired by that. And I love, like, again, Depeche Mode. Like, I love Depeche Mode. Uh, they're taking that influence. They're coming from a metal background, which is very typical. A lot of metal people, even newer metal people, love Depeche Mode and are now tying this into synthwave because i i can kind of see depeche mode a little bit in synthwave too because they're a synth pop band and they did a lot of they did a lot of experimentation in the mid 80s as far as like synthesizers and making and recording their own samples yeah, and doing uh, all this crazy shit if that if depeche mode was formed now that's definitely the genre i'd consider them i would say synthwave yeah except but since they're from the 80s, then it's like new wave. <laughs> yeah, it's new wave. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting... Synthwave seems to be reaching to very specific influences and a very specific set of backgrounds to create the genre where people... And I think it's... Pr... What what do you think the average age range of some of these people are? I know that, that Com Truze is in his early to mid-30s. Yeah, a lot of people are uh, late 20s to 30s is the typical age range for most of the artists. So that's very, don't you think that's very interesting? So it's like a culmination of like things that you're influenced as a kid, your own mod, like what you grew up with, and then turning it into this new, this this other thing 
it's kind of a combination of modern techniques and classical influence and putting them together to create, I, th- I think, a really amazing genre. Like, the more I listen to it, the more I'm like, I really like this. Like, it hits all of the right feels and notes and things for me. And there's just more of that out there for you to discover. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Like another thing is like the Blade Runner soundtrack. And I can really hear that in a lot of synth wave artists. And it, it is not just because it uses a particular synthesizer, but it's also, again, how it's cued to a movie. It tells a story. And because like a lot of it, like if you think about like, Tom Cruise doesn't have any formal music training at all. It's him messing around on the computer, being influenced by the various elements that go in for him. And he's not using classical, like he's not using pop music, like four, four, a hundred beats per minute, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus sort of song structures. He's, the songs really kind of stretch over the whole course where they, they build and they like the recede and they kind of like they're really more like musical moods than a, a typical song structure and because of that because he doesn't he's not formally trained he doesn't know necessarily that there's all these rules that are supposedly out there mm-hmm. for making music and i love that about the genre where it's you know it's not tied to even necessarily electronic tropes per se it takes those elements obviously again like apex twin and some of those other things and but then just like takes the rules and like throws them away and there you are. So, and my point being, we go on this whole synthwave diatribe is because it's time back to John Carpenter. John me. Carpenter. And I, you know, since you mentioned Blade Runner, like Vangelis. Yes. Like these are the forefathers of the genre now. Yeah. And like you got John Carpenter. You have one of the biggest artists in the synthwave scene now, Carpenter Brute. Right. Of course. There you go, right there. There's your inspiration and everything for that. Right in the name. Right in the name. It, that's, and I and I absolutely love it. I, you know, I, what I really wonder, do you know what what do you, like kids think of it? Like if you're in your mid twenties or younger, do they love? I don't know if younger people like it, because like in the groups, so like I'm in the synthwave vinyl collectors club on facebook and it's like one of the only reasons i'm there because you've got all your new releases and the artists are part of it too and another thing synthwave artists are very engaged with their fans and receptive to that so that's cool too but it's just like i'm not i almost everyone is like around my age right so i don't know if it's something that young people would be into maybe because they have you know they don't have the connection to the 80s or whatever i don't know yeah it's very interesting and i and it, to the point, synthwave is interesting because it's, as you said, it's outside of a time where people typically discover new things. And it's an age group of people creating and enjoying something that is new. Yes, it's, it ties other elements together, but it is a new thing. And it's people that, are like, because I believe the study is, like, between... 13 and 16 you develop your allegedly you develop your musical taste and it sets in and that's why bands like Metallica and Guns N' Roses are still really popular because of that the the 
older millennial group remembers listening to those bands growing up. They're still pretty young, but around that age group. But that's why they still have a a leg to stand on is because there's this other generation that's coming into money, coming into independence. And, you know, I think the Guns N' Roses tour did like $126 million or something like that. And Metallica, like Jesus Christ. They're, they're basically yeah. a genre upon themselves. Like they're an institution that is, but I wonder how long they're going to go. Do you think an audience? For, I don't know. Will it be like, uh, Rolling Stones esque, but Rolling, <laughs> you know, Rolling Stones. I think they've made such an effort to transcend musical, like, because you know they start off as like a cheap blues knockoff. That was their main inspiration, and then they've just continued to experiment to do different things. And they, their proper recording days are at long stretch. It's so weird, different. Like you could hear one Rolling Stones song, you're like, "Is that Rolling? St- is that the Rolling Stones, or is that somebody different?" Like you can kind of question because of when it was recorded or what thing that they were experimenting with. But I think they have a little more legs to them than some other groups have that are very stuck. Like if you think about the Bee Gees, you only associate them with disco, and that is it. And that like you don't associate experimentation with them. Disco, that's it. That's all you think. But then you got a band like ABBA. I think they're like having holograms. Like they're gonna get to get back together via holograms and are gonna tour with holograms. I'm not even joking. Ugh. But I, I, you know, the point being, I wanted to bring up synthwave in regard to our John Carpenter discussion because John Carpenter is so associated, not just as a filmmaker but also a film composer. And I feel like. Soundtracks maybe meant more in the 80s. Like the music is just as impactful and memorable as the movies. We're like, now, like I saw this thing on YouTube. Any John Hughes movie. Yeah. I I saw this thing on YouTube where they're basically saying like every Marvel movie uses the exact same music. Like you could put Marvel music in any Marvel movie and it would be, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I, I could tell you right now, I didn't even know they had music in their movies. <laughs> exactly. So you, you think about like only modern movies that are made today that are looking back in the past make any effort to put focus on the music. Like if they're making a movie of the 90s or the 80s, they put extra effort into the sound of the movie where if it's a modern movie, the, the soundtrack is just a texture and not necessarily like there's a few exceptions like Wonder Woman. The Wonder Woman theme is is very iconic. It's you know, and maybe the new Blade Runner movie only because it's Blade Runner that they put a lot of focus on the soundtrack. But there's not a lot of other movies that really are really you associate like the music being like oh my god, did you listen to the soundtrack of that movie? Because yeah. it's it's not really it's it's there. In modern movies, the soundtracks are there to add texture. The, the only real thing that I can think of in a modern movie would be like Baby Driver. How they worked with the sound. Because that was an important part of the movie. Right. That is that is the outlier and not the mode. Whereas like... Yeah, or I see these crazy things like Mondo is like, here we've got soundtracks from movies. And it's just like, here's a soundtrack to this movie. And you're like, I don't remember fucking any of that shit. Why... 
Right. Why even? Or or you think of something like uh, Stranger Things, right? With of course the synth wave, and that's very different to a lot of people. So that you know gave it treads. Yeah, and that's what I like about it is like it's such a it seems so foreign, especially in the soundscape of today's music. Like I've always loved it. Like I you know I love Gary Newman. You know I love a lot of those you know earlier either Depeche Mode or like maybe some of the gothier sort of side of things. But that's that's always been a love of mine since growing up. So I hear Stranger Things and I feel like good about it. I'm like, yeah, that, good on you for, for bringing this up. I think it strikes people so foreign that they're like, what the fuck is this? I've never heard a synthesizer. You know, Moog shut down. Like they were almost out of business for a while. But because of the resurgence of of that particular sound, they they're in production again. They're making the Moog minis and they're making like, they're going strong again. And there's a lot of newer synth companies out there too, that are making synthesizers and doing crazy things. So, you know, it's, it's a positive thing. I, I mean, maybe it's just because of my nostalgic view of the world and I, I have a fondness for it, but you know, it's not a bad thing. It's not. I mean, if I could keep staying interested in music, count me in. I don't want to be that person who's like, I listen to 90s gangster rap, and that's all I'm going to listen to for the rest of my life. I love me some fucking gangster rap. Yes. I definitely grew up on hip hop, and I love it, but I like more things. I want to, I want to you know, find and explore new stuff. So... And let me let me wrap all of this up. Let me kind of like encompass it. So, the Apocalypse trilogy <laughs> <laughs> is this like we went fucking way off. Of, I specifically wanted to do this, go off, of this but band. it is a part of John Carpenter. Yes, right. the Apocalypse trilogy I think is really uh, one of those things that he started to focus on the degradation of modern society. I think before other people did, uh, and. He he did it through these series of movies in different ways, which is interesting. But I think he had enough foresight to kind of see where things were going and create these really the series of movies that are really maybe some of them are better remembered in hindsight. Again, uh, in the Mouth of Madness and Prince of Darkness are very much movies of their time, uh, but. He saw something, and that's the genius of John Carpenter. The The lasting impact is he explored themes that I think are more important now than they've ever been, an existential modern dread of not only us exploring and having the consequences of exploration. We've got things like CRISPR, which we're starting to play with genetic uh, you know, gene mapping and genetic editing, we're starting, you know, like the idea of God. What is God's existence? How does God and science balance to each other? You have also the idea of sanity and and popular, I guess, mob mentality. The mob is dumb. The person is smart. And he's exploring these themes that I think are just as poignant now as they were when he released these movies on top of being a trendsetter with music. He's so distinctive in how he does things. 
that it cuts right through even 30, 40 years later that you could consider him a contributor not only to music, but movies, movie trends, our obsessions with post-apocalyptic movies. He only ever dealt with the beginnings of apocalypses, but most of the content on TV is always dealing with the aftermath of apocalypses. I don't know, post-apocalyptic, like, escape from escape from New York. True. That's, but how many of in a series of movies did he explore that theme? Yeah, yeah. One or two, technically. So, I, you know, that's really his lasting contribution to popular culture of identifying themes long before other people do did and actually produced material on it. And some of them are produced with great effect and are timeless. Some, some not so much like, you know, a lot of his movies are really it. They're hit or miss, but they're all John Carpenter, you know, like for every, you know, he, they live or escape from, from New York or assault on precinct 13 or Christine, or, you know, like he's got these other movies that are not as, not as good. Yeah. Uh, but they're still in the scope of his body of work. I don't think you think of filmmakers that have produced as many movies as him and have been consistently been memorable. There's not very many. And not only to be able to contribute to movies, but also music, I think it's a really interesting and awesome thing. So I love John Carpenter. Ultimately, I appreciate what he's done for me as far as movies that I've enjoyed as a kid, movies I enjoy now, music I enjoy now, and, you know, just being ahead of the curve. And we talked about, I talked about this a little bit earlier. It's like, did movies finally catch up to his sentiment and past him a little? Probably. But he'll always hold a fond memory, a place in my heart, if you will. In the world. What what are your final thoughts? He's a guy who did his own thing. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah. And to be someone who would write, direct, and score his own movie. So weird. That's a lot of work. Yeah. So I definitely applaud him for that. And he was doing the right thing for a good number of them. So Yeah. So that's all I have to say. Until next time. This is Eric. And this is Kyle. All right. Until next time. Bye.